Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, May 1st. In today's news, the government races to develop a vaccine that could be fielded nationwide by January. Hundreds of protesters, some carrying guns, storm Michigan's capital. And Mike Pence's staff threatens a reporter who revealed that they knew masks were required in the Mayo Clinic. But first, the big idea. Senior U.S. officials are beginning to seriously explore proposals for punishing China or demanding financial compensation from Beijing for its handling of the coronavirus pandemic. The move could splinter already strained relations between the two superpowers at a perilous moment for the global economy. In private, President Trump and aides have discussed stripping China of its sovereign immunity, aiming to enable either the U.S. government or individual coronavirus victims to sue China in court for damages. Legal experts say an attempt to limit China's sovereign immunity would be extremely difficult to accomplish, if not impossible, and would almost certainly require congressional legislation. Some administration officials have also discussed having the United States cancel part of its debt obligations to China. Asked about this on Thursday, Trump said that things could get tough if he started playing games like that. He explained that canceling interest payments to China could undermine what he called the sanctity of the dollar. But he added that there are other ways to levy extreme penalties on China, such as raising $1 trillion by imposing tariffs on all Chinese imports. Now, some of the president's top political advisors have been encouraging him to take a more forceful swing at China because they think it will help him get reelected. They're planning an ad campaign that Trump has signed off on to attempt to rebrand Joe Biden as Beijing Biden. White House officials and multiple congressional lawmakers have become increasingly fixated on China's response to the outbreak and failure to contain it. They're also pressing Trump to take a harder line. On Thursday, the U.S. intelligence community released an assessment formally concluding that the virus behind the coronavirus pandemic originated in China. While asserting that the pathogen was not man-made or genetically altered, the statement pointedly declined to rule out the possibility that this virus escaped from the complex of laboratories in Wuhan that has been at the forefront of global research into bat-borne viruses linked to multiple epidemics over the past decade. While U.S. intelligence analysts and many scientists see the lab-as-origin theory as technically possible, no direct evidence has emerged, suggesting that the coronavirus escaped from Wuhan's research facilities. Many scientists argue that the evidence tilts firmly toward a natural transmission, a still unknown interaction in the fall of last year that allowed the virus to jump from a bat or another animal to a human. And as much as a rising China, and specifically the communist regime in Beijing, represents a troubling threat to American hegemony in the 21st century, there are also daily reminders of how much better we are than them technologically. That's one advantage of a free society, and frankly, it's why they spend so much effort on industrial espionage to rip off our companies of American know-how and ingenuity. To wit, it turns out that the 250 ventilators China made a huge deal about sending to the United Kingdom could kill or cause significant harm to patients. That's according to a new letter 
from doctors that represent British healthcare workers. The document highlights a string of really serious concerns with the Shangri-La 510 model ventilator that the Chinese have been scoring propaganda points by sending around the world. Western doctors who have been using the junky Chinese devices say they cannot be cleaned thoroughly and they have a variable and unreliable oxygen supply. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this May Day. Number one, the federal government is racing to develop a coronavirus vaccine that could be fielded nationwide by January, even as the national stay-at-home guidance has now officially expired because April is over. This January timeline represents a fast pace for vaccine development, but it still means there would be no fail-safe protection from the coronavirus until long after most Americans are likely to have returned to work or school, and also until after the November election. Tony Fauci, our top infectious disease specialist, says the goal is production of hundreds of millions of doses by January. The effort is being dubbed Operation Warp Speed. Fauci says manufacturers of the best potential vaccine candidates will ramp up production at risk, which means before the vaccines are proven to work. This will speed up the process, and it means that taxpayers rather than drug companies will shoulder the financial risk of failed vaccine candidates. Though this will end up being extremely costly, it could result in a vaccine being available months earlier than under the typical process that puts the burden on companies. The potential January date would be on the early end of the 12 to 18 month timeline that Fauci has repeatedly given for a vaccine. Now, the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research is one of the labs working on trying to find the cure. And they're literally staying open 24 hours a day, seven days a week in pursuit of a vaccine. Our official death toll this morning from this invisible enemy's attack on America is 62,560. 62,560. And it's likely much higher. Here are two other elements of the federal response worth drawing to your attention. As lobbyists blitz Washington for a piece of the massive federal response to the pandemic, a group of former Trump administration officials and campaign alumni are at the center of the action cashing in as they help rich investors and big companies tap into coveted financial and regulatory relief. In all, at least 25 former officials who once worked for the Trump administration or his campaign or the transition team are now registered as lobbyists for clients who are seeking something related to the coronavirus. So much for draining the swamp. And federal prosecutors are examining the communications of a Long Island family doctor who appears frequently on Fox News and has been in touch with the White House to tout an anti-malarial drug as a treatment for the coronavirus. Get this. The examination of Zev Zelenko's records began when one of his associates, conservative commentator Jerome Corsi, accidentally sent an email intended for Zelenko to another Z name in his email address book. The other Z name? Federal prosecutor Aaron Zelensky, who as a senior member of special counsel Bob Mueller's team, spent months scrutinizing Corsi's activities vis-a-vis WikiLeaks during the 2016 election. Corsi said Zelensky responded to the unexpected email by reaching out to Corsi's lawyer and demanding all of Corsi's communications with Zelenko. Corsi says he and Zelenko are collaborating on a website designed to connect people with doctors. He added that they've acted lawfully, 
but he also said that they will comply with law enforcement demands for his communications and records. Zelensky is tasked now with investigating coronavirus-related crimes for the Maryland U.S. Attorney's Office, part of a directive from Attorney General Bill Barr to prioritize such cases. DOJ already has charged a medley of fraudsters for peddling fake cures, selling personal protective equipment they don't actually have, or running more complicated Medicare reimbursement scams. Officials say tips are coming in droves. Number two. Protesters last night stormed the state capitol in Michigan as the state legislature debated extending coronavirus restrictions that have been imposed by Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Some waved guns outside the capitol in Lansing, while others affiliated with what they dubbed the American Patriot Rally tried to get onto the House floor but were blocked by armed law enforcement officers. The rally was called to demand that all businesses reopen immediately. Late last night, Michigan's GOP-controlled House voted against extending the emergency declaration that Whitmer had issued. Many states are relaxing their restrictions, with more than half set to partially reopen by the end of this week, though others, including California, are moving much more cautiously. Yesterday, Texas reported 50 more coronavirus deaths, the most in any one day for the Lone Star State. They also reported more than 1,000 new cases the biggest one-day increase in infections since April 10th. But Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, says that's not deterring him from ending his stay-at-home order. Now, here in D.C., this area reported nearly 2,000 new cases yesterday, with the district itself recording its worst day for fatalities, even as Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, a Republican, comes under increasing pressure from fellow Republicans to reopen his state's economy. With the virus now having killed about 2,000 residents in D.C., Virginia, and Maryland, local leaders say it's unlikely they will soon lift shutdown orders that have stunted the local economy. Nearly 119,000 more local residents lost their jobs just last week. Doctors and public health officials tell us that the virus increasingly is infecting people who can afford to miss work or telecommute the least. These are grocery store employees, delivery drivers, and construction workers. And often they, in turn, are infecting their families. It is a human and economic tragedy. The director of D.C.'s health department warned yesterday that in a worst-case scenario, this city will not be able to reopen for at least another three months. Number three, Vice President Pence's office has threatened to retaliate against a reporter who revealed that Pence's office told journalists they would be required to wear masks for Pence's visit to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, a requirement Pence himself did not follow. Pence's trip to the clinic on Tuesday generated criticism after he was photographed without a surgical mask, the only person in the room not wearing one. The clinic requires all visitors to wear masks as a precaution against spreading the virus. Now, Pence's wife, Karen Pence, said in an interview with Fox News on Thursday that her husband had no idea he was supposed to wear a mask at Mayo until after he'd left. But then Steve Herman, who covers the White House for Voice of America and was on the trip, said Pence's staff had sent a planning memo to reporters the day before saying that all people, with no exceptions, were required to wear a mask inside the hospital. This enraged Pence's staff, which told Herman that he had violated the off-the-record terms of the logistical memo. Herman said he was notified that Pence's office has banned him from traveling aboard Air Force Two. 
Although a spokesperson in Pence's office later told Voice of America managers that any punishment is still under discussion and that they might back off if they get a formal apology from the reporter or his news organization. The language of the directive that Pence's staff sent out confirms that they were well aware that the vice president needed to be wearing a mask. And in a now-deleted tweet, the Mayo Clinic said it alerted Pence to its mask policy before he entered the facility. Yesterday, Pence did wear a mask as he toured a General Motors auto plant in Indiana that has been converted into a factory making ventilators for hospitals around America. Now to close with our daily silver lining. The reason America has been so exceptional historically, the reason we have been what John Winthrop and then Ronald Reagan called the shining city upon the hill, is not our military might, but our moral capacity to be a force for good. People are more impressed by the power of our example rather than the example of our power. One farmer in Florida is showing just what that means. Hank Scott believes that the bright green rows of ripening cucumbers are the best yield he's ever had on his land since his father started that farm in 1963. During any other spring, he'd be overseeing an army of workers harvesting cucumbers and shipping truckloads of them to pickling consumers all along the East Coast. But the contagion has closed or crippled the businesses where his produce would end up. Instead of letting the produce go to waste, Hank has invited volunteer pickers from the Society of St. Andrew, a Christian hunger relief organization, to glean as much produce as they can from his fields and to donate it to nearby food banks. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, May 1st. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Homan. Stay safe this weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday.